You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, where you will meet entrepreneurs, cultivators, scientists, doctors, and inventors in the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketer and publicist in the cannabis industry. Curio Wellness has been operating in Maryland's medical market since 2016 and recently flipped their stores to adult use. They are a family-owned vertical operation and are on the move with expansion plans by offering franchise opportunities with their foreign daughter dispensary business model. They expanded cultivation facilities into Minnesota as a stepping stone into that state, and their scientific advisory board is behind the development of patented products, and they are active on Capitol Hill by educating lawmakers on the benefits of the plant. Today we meet Wendy Bronfine, co-founder and policy director at Curio Wellness. One thing that really stood out when I was researching um, Far and Daughter and Curio is that I know, you know, a lot of medical dispensaries position themselves as health focused, you know, of course, um, but I feel like Curio takes it to a higher level by including the spa with the massage, the acupuncture, pharmacist. It's just like, I feel like you guys pushed it to, you know, a, a, a higher level. So um I, I just think that's really great to draw people in. But I, if you could just give us an overview of the Maryland marketplace for those of us who don't know, um, and you know who's your cannabis consumer, um, you know that kind of thing. If you could just give us an overview of your operations in Maryland. Sure. So Maryland's cannabis program began. Um, in 2016 was when they authorized the first round of licenses. And actually today is the day in 2017 when dispensaries first opened. Um, and our company was the first to deliver products to those, I believe it was like seven dispensaries that were open around the state. And so we were in a medical program, a very um, flourishing medical program um, until June 30th of this year, at which point um, on July 1st, we transitioned to medical and adult use. So um, as a met from the medical side, which remains today, um, it's a very broad program in terms of access. And that was um, intentional. And I think what made it very strong because there wasn't a lot of obstacles between the patient and the provider in accessing the program. And there wasn't a very restrictive list um, or sort of um, a... Um, you didn't have to be in a in a in a very kind of end of life scenario with um, with respect to your health to be a candidate for the medical program. So we had um, a lot of access, ease of access, and and broad participation. When we added adult use, it became your traditional um, adults over twenty one. I think that many people, as that approached. Um, really kind of hone in on adult use as being kind of a social access, and that is definitely there, but. Um, it is clearly very therapeutic in nature as well. If you stand inside the dispensary for any amount of time, you're hearing people talk about things like not sleeping well. Um, this time of year, you're hearing a lot of what I would refer to as like social anxieties and stressors, right? I got family coming over, I got people coming in, like all of that anxiety of the holiday season. We've seen that all through medical. We're seeing it again now in adult use. People who have aches and pains, um, some of all of the same audiences that were, you know, just what aging does to you, whether it's sort of um, 
it sounds terrible, but sort of like the expected deterioration or like the more um, detrimental kind of conditions that you could acquire, disease states and things like that. So all those things are present. I think you just have people who either weren't aware of medical, who didn't want to be signed up in a program um, and are coming into adult use. I think what we are hopeful to see is that the medical program will begin to climb up again as we adopt new adult use consumers, because in Maryland, when you're medical, you do not pay tax, you have access to the entire menu, which means different product forms and higher dosage products. And you are also, in most cases, served first at a dispensary, right? So you have priority service when you're shopping. Um, if you're adult use, you have a 9% tax your products are restricted in form and potency. Um, you can only have up to 10 milligrams per serving and 100 milligrams um, per package. So I, I believe, you know, as a, um, you know, as a company that believes in the therapeutics of the plant, I think we're hopeful to see that those who have found us through adult use will migrate to medical and see the plethora of what's out there. And also, it's it's better for their pocketbooks as well. Yeah, I you know I I've been recently hearing other people you know tout the benefits of the medical program you know based on you know no taxes and and I didn't even think about but the higher THC um, uh, doses so you know they're yeah they they might just migrate over to that because you can't get that in the regular market anywhere coming in in that sector is so we make there's a couple of products we make that are that are um, in this sort of therapeutic line a product called Good Night. That's a, a pulse release tablet that we developed with our scientific board um, that we in in adult use, we have to sell it in a 10 pack because at 10 in a 10 count, you hit that cap of 100 milligrams. Now, we wouldn't consider necessarily a tablet, quote, an edible, but it's kind of being it's falling under that. It's being captured in that area. Now, if you're on the medical side, you could buy a 30 count a month supply, right, which if you're using it nightly to sleep is a useful way to buy the product. If you're on adult use, you're forced to buy multiple packages to sustain your need, which is also less cost effective. Same thing with our topical move, which is on the medical side, I mean, on the adult use side, you can only buy it at 100 to 100. Um, we make it at 150 to 150. Of course, you're not consuming it and it's not psychoactive. So you really shouldn't be constrained, but because of the regulatory regime, you are. So there's, there's products that you lack access to that have um, package level potency that is higher that are just restrictive, um, but are you know beneficial to everyone and really not about getting more and more high, so to speak. Right. Some people just have a you know a, to a high tolerance level to it also, and they, that's just what they need to even get to a good level, not high. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and how how is how is it working in the stores now that you're combining the rec and the medical? Like I know you're saying that they get first priority and this and that, but how is the flow in the the same, you know, it's it's a different mindset really when you're going in there. How, how is that working now that you are in it? So it's a single stream system in the sense that all dispensaries became serviceable to both sectors. We don't have medical dispensaries versus adult use dispensaries. We just have dispensaries. Um, in the law, it was provisioned that a dispensary either needs to 
give priority access to medical people or have hours of service that are purely dedicated to medical. I believe most stores operate with the priority method. That's how we do it. Um, beyond that, it's really not very different. Um, you know, adult, everyone needs to show an ID when they enter. Medical people are, are validated to be in the program, which gives them that broader menu and the no tax experience and the priority service. And adult use are validated to be 21 and then put into the queue. Um, and when you, even if you went on to say the dispensary's website, site now, there's a tab and you can toggle between rec and medical. Um, so you can see the different SKUs that appear to you. You can only access the medical if you can support that with your patient ID number. But overall, the experience is really very much the same. I think, um, I think what we think about is, uh, particularly from like an education and a branding standpoint is everything is new again, right? We're like, we kind of are like, it's, it's 2017, 2018 again, right? Because there's so many people who are coming in who haven't been in the program with us. And I often refer to like the, the menu at the dispensary, kind of like the cheesecake factory. Like it's just, it's a huge menu. There's so many choices and it can be overwhelming for patients or customers who have never been in the store. And you think you you're looking for one item and you have like a hundred plus to choose from, right? You just don't know where to begin. So we've always been very focused on trying to educate people on the basics, you know, understanding the endocannabinoids, system and how that why these uh, products are working inside your body and they can be effective what cannabinoids cannabinoids are what terpenes are um and then aligning the product with the person here in maryland when you buy a product there is a label on that that shows you from the test results the cannabinoids major and minor and the terpenes that appear in the product and so you really, as you as you begin to pry products, you can really understand why something is good for you by virtue of that label. Like, you know what? When there's a presence of CBG, it's more effective for me. When I see these terpenes, I'm getting the results I'm looking for. I think a lot of people don't realize that the nuance of when they say, well, I want my mood uplifted or I want to help relax or I deal with the infl inflammation. I don't think a lot of people realize which connection cannabinoids and or terpenes are impacting those results. And then if you understand that by use by trial and error or from guidance from experts like us, you can really pinpoint the right products um, to solve your problems or create the experience that you want. And then as you shop, you can really self-select because when you look at the menu and it gives you those that feedback on what's in there, you know exactly what you're looking for and can find the products you'll like the best. And and it's so exciting for the future of minor cannabinoids. I'm I'm so excited about that whole future. Um, but how how are beverages doing in Maryland or in your store? I don't know how many producers you have yet in, in that phase, but it's curious how that's so doing. That's a that is not a dominant area in the state due to how the program shifted when we became adult use. So um we so the the primary i would say liquid suspension that existed pre-adult use was a a product we make that's um by dixie called an elixir um it's a uh a full-size bottle but the cap has a serving line so it's 17 doses per bottle inside there um and but that product itself even though it, it can be 100 milligrams per serving in the bottle has been relegated to the medical only sector because it was determined that things that are in a liquid state need to be in containers that have no more than 10 mLs per bottle. Um, so we don't have much of a beverage market 
market now because of that. And that that's an arbitrary decision. Our, our law did not prescribe how dosage forms were relegated to the, to the regulator to determine that. And this is a decision that they made that the industry has been very much pushing back on because I think, as you're mentioning, you do see infused beverages um, commonly in, in this industry um, on the adult use side. Um, and you see them in more traditional volumes, right? Like oftentimes, like if you're using an aluminum can, that would be your volume. You could control the potency of that, but that would be the scale of the beverage. And here we've been um, forced to a much smaller scale, which has kind of eliminated beverages as a category at this time. I think you'll start to see things come on, but they become more of like, you know, small, for lack of a better term, like shot size servings versus a beverage. And, and you know, I think that's to the detriment because for those people who may be considering it as a social um, uplifter or relaxant, right, as opposed to having a glass of wine or drinking a beer, it's nice to have something that you can hold that feels akin to what other people are having in volume, but you're just sort of um, socializing in a different way. And I and I think we all know that alcohol is far more dangerous than, than cannabis anyway. And is that something that can be mixed into a drink? I mean, I, that's one of my favorite um, consumption, you know, or new products that are, are, I see coming out there where, you know, like you said, it's it's like in a shot form, formula. Yeah. yeah. We do have some on the market that we've had since medical where they're either like um, like the squirt dropper bottles where like if you had like a water or something and you add it and then also like um, the tear off little powder packets where you would I add it those. to a volume. Yes. I yeah, love there, there's, there's some water activated options for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think those will be huge in the future. I feel like I hear a lot of people in the industry excited about Maryland, the you know the market coming up in Maryland. Do you why why is that? And do you think there's other policies that are needed to improve? I mean, I think we all need policy, you know, improvement. But what do you think um, is needed in the Maryland market, or what do you like, and what do you think is needed? I guess. Um, so I think. What we've seen in terms of the functionality of the market since July 1st, that where there's areas for improvement, um, would be one, uh, previous to adult use, we had regulations on advertising um, that were fulsome and allowed us to effectively market our businesses and without any sort of incident or obscenity in, in doing so for the previous five years. When we changed to adult use, advertising was moved from a regulatory space to the to the law itself and became much more restrictive. Um, and so I think the market is not as large as what people expected, whether you're actually operating inside of it or if, you know, the consultants who told the legislator how large and how great the opportunity was going to be, that's not what's happening here. I mean, we've tracked just inside of $90 million in sales month over month. Um, if you compare us to a state like Missouri, which came online in February and has virtually the same number of adults over 21 with a lower median income, they track at $30 million more month over month than we do. Um, and, and I think that's really due to one, the lack of advertising. I think there's a 
lack of awareness. People who wanted to know know, but I don't think in broad strokes, people are aware that this is available to them. It's due to this product issue that from a regulatory perspective, certain products were left on the medical side and not available to adult use. And many of those are products that I think while they were always here as medical, most people would find to be much more adult use oriented, like beverages, like concentrates, infused pre-rolls, these elixirs, all these things are only for medical. Um, and then the last is um, the curbside service. So there has been um, what many have seen as an arbitrary decision that curbside remains only for medical patients and not for adult use, which is sort of, um, you know, an unequal access, right? You know, you could be equally infirmed or inconvenienced or disabled that you that having your car brought to your car is is of use to you as an adult use consumer as a patient. Um, and so we're hopeful that in the side of the next year, we're going to see these three things corrected, which I think would allow this program to really fully realize um, its potential. Okay, great. Wow. That's yeah, all these little things really add up. That's for sure. Um, so I, I also, uh, you know, I'm impressed with this, you know, scientific advisory board that you have and um, and I just wanted to uh, touch base on that a little bit is you you won your first patent for a sleep product, I think that you mentioned earlier. And is this based on the proprietary pulse release doses? Because I don't think you can, is that is that what the, the patent is on in your product? Correct. Um, that, that product has secured um, two patents. We have patent pending for another product could, called Good Day, which is the sister to Good Night, um, a, a daytime formulation for, for focus and anxiety and energy, um, and, and as well as um, a product called GI Comfort that is targeted towards individuals with IBS, IBD, and Crohn's. All of those products use um, this, this concept of pulse release inside of a tablet working different ways relative to the product that, um, that it's attached to. Um, and it is it is that method that we are patenting. Um, the chair of our scientific advisory board is a noted pharmacologist. Um, he holds the patent on Adderall XR. So he's an expert in these pulse systems. Um, and so that's what we're using in these different applications. So with sleep, it was about how can you fall and stay asleep, right? When we surveyed um, patients at the time to understand what was going on with sleep, what they were using that was either prescription, over-the-counter, or methods of cannabis, it was, I can't fall asleep, I can't stay asleep. And some people had one or the other, and some a lot of people had both. And so the pulse approach there was, let's take the right blend of cannabinoids, let's put them in a pulse that will allow that someone to take it 30 minutes before bed, help them fall asleep, and then give them a second pulse three hours later that would help them stay asleep. And when we did a trial that was independent of ourselves in partnership with Sleep Score, what we saw was not only did people sleep more, but they reported feeling more well-rested, they napped less, and if they had disruptive events like getting up to go to the bathroom or something in the middle of the night, they were able to go back to sleep. They were not. They were no longer instances. It's like, I got up to go to the bathroom and then I was done. I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. So it, it really kind of restored that hygiene, if you will. Now with the GI product, it's an entirely different approach to the pulse. Here, we're looking for this tablet that is built with a lot of CBG, a little bit of CBD, and a very tiny bit of THC. So it's a highly functional 
um, pill to be able to take during the day to help manage these conditions. Um, this is being released deep in the bowel in a pulse system. So it knows where to get into your body before it begins to release the medicine and then uses a pulse system to, to sustain those effects for you. Um, so, and that's been, yeah. So, I mean, this is, I think our vision in entering this company in this in this sector with our company was how can we normalize cannabis and use the active ingredients from the plant to create therapeutic solutions that will improve quality of life and knowing that in in these instances where they're much more um, condition based like GI issues or sleep issues um you know we know that that doctors typically are looking for data and facts to support something to feel comfortable about it that's how they've been educated that's how they've been chained by pharmaceutical companies so we needed to be able to build things that were credible that we could clinically trial um that gi product is going into a clinical trial um, in the new year with a gastroenterology practice here in maryland um so that we can further it and we can continue to normalize this conversation because I don't think that we can overcome a lot of the hurdles that we have with regulators and legislators on state and federal le levels until we have like facts to dispute a lot of the myths that are out there. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I, it's that's exactly what we need, and that's what I found so impressive about your company. Also, you know that you're you're taking this on and and moving us forward in the direct in this direction because this is where we need to go to to convince these lawmakers. Do you have to um, have any special permits licenses to be doing this R and D, or does it fall under the Curio company? Because I, you know, that's been the problem in the industry as we, you know federal law prohibits these kind of clinical trials or it's very um hard to do so when we yes so when we did the sleep trial under the medical regime um we enlisted an independent investigator so a doctor who was attached to the study itself outside of us and then we worked with a company called sleep score that has a device that can monitor your sleeping and anyone who participated in the trial was given this bedside device that could read their sleep patterns and and give quantitative information on how how they um slept that uh, but aside from the regulatory piece of the puzzle which was you needed to come to our dispensary to, to be dispensed the cannabis in order to participate in the trial. After that point, we were not involved in it. Um, and then once it, the trial window was completed, the data was given back to us from Sleep Score to show, you know, did we did we do what we thought we could do, and could we commercialize this product, which is what we did. Now it is not a you know um, phase four clinical trial from an FDA perspective because to your point we can't do those things. Um, and even by virtue of our own regulations at the time, we couldn't do something from a placebo perspective because the law required us to put the label to show the lab results. So when you were taking the product, you knew there was this much THC and this much CBN, um, and you, you, you were very aware of what your dose was. Um, moving forward with the GI, inside of the adult use bill, there was more legislation passed that has expanded our ability um, in this industry to, to study inside the state, to partner with institutions. We have great institutions here like University of Maryland and Hopkins, MedStar, LifeBridge, NIH, like tons of healthcare in this state. So um, we're able to now go forward in this, in this GI study in a different way where we're working with the medical practice directly on it, where we have where we would be able to do 
um, placebo controlled, right? For the purposes of the study, be able to blind things to have a more true um, look at the product. So that has been a regulatory hurdle we've overcome on the state level to further fine tune the ability to research um, and effectively report on the success of a product and or its effectiveness. The diff, like I think what we're doing here, what or what we're looking to do with um, in these in now being able with the new law to work with institutions will get us closer to that because before the institutions here really couldn't do much. Um, if they were going to technically work with the plant in any way, they would have had to get it from um, the University of Mississippi, which we all know is, is not, not reflective of the products that are in legal markets that companies like us and others are growing and producing. Um, so I don't think that data set is, is sort of accurate relative to what people are are getting when they're purchasing legally through medical or adult use. Um, and, and what we're doing, what the law has expanded now would allow the institutions here to work with the materials that are coming from the state. So I think it's something that we'll see happening um, in the years to come. Um, we do have research, partner research with Clemson University um, from a cultivation perspective. So, um, in cultivation, there is an area of that called tissue culture. Um, it's very common across traditional horticulture and has made its way over to cannabis. Um, the foremost expert is at Clemson University, and we have been in a research partnership with them in their state and their location. They can they can conduct the part of the study that looks at hemp, and in our um, facility, we're doing the side of it that works with the cannabis. And then their PhD candidate comes to us as part of that program to witness and participate in the uh, cannabis side, whereas when they're back at school, they're on the hemp side. And we intend to publish that those findings together um, on this tissue culture research. But again, that that's that's a kind of clear example where states have different, have competing regulations or laws so we've, we've worked together where we can do one side and they can do the other. Right, coming here from New York, Cornell University is also very active in the cultivation programs and working in partner research partnerships. I think if I was a dispensary owner, I think that would just be such a great program to be part of, uh, you know, so. I would love to talk about um, the franchise um, operations uh, of Far and Daughter, and I know that you've been trying to, uh, you know, set up this model in Maryland and other places, and just wanted to hear what your, uh, how that's going. I, and I know you've set up a fund, the company has set up a fund, um, and I just feel that it's such an important um, business model that we could use to uplift social equity entrepreneurs in the industry, um, you know, to give them the handholding that they need. But earlier you told me that you were having problems uh, getting this program off the ground. Just wanted to hear about that. Yes, yeah, so um, we began this process back in 2018 and the concept of it was in, as, as states look to expand licensing and expand opportunity of individuals to be licensees, um, having, being an operator here in Maryland where we cultivate, we process, we have a dispensary. And by virtue of being a cultivator and a processor, we sell to um, 91 of the 93 dispensaries in the state. We really had perspective on both sides of the business. And we knew that running a dispensary itself was um, is, is not an easy task. It is not just as simple as, hey, I've been in retail, I could do a dispensary. Um, there's a lot of 
branding, marketing, compliance, logistics, all these pieces um, that are very nuanced and a heavy capital lift more than sort of a traditional retail. And then on the wholesale side, we could see the variety of operators that were out there and who who had ease at getting up and running and who found it to be more difficult, as well as the hurdles that you come into from local zoning and finding real estate and all these types of things. So we, we kind of came up with this concept of what if we took the model that we have that is working and has proven to be effective and we turn it into a franchise so that those who enter the sector don't have to figure it all out because there's a lot of pieces to figure out relative to just running your business, but then also remaining compliant and then navigating the um, the real estate and the zoning piece and the site selection because you're cannabis and you're looking for that location. And so we went through, we kind of went through the process of creating that franchise model. Simultaneously, the other piece of that puzzle was capital, right? This is a, a Cost of capital is very high in this business. You cannot just get go get a, um, a loan from a bank because we're schedule one. It's mostly private investment that exists here. Um, and so we were like, we should create a fund that could support these entrepreneurs to get them the startup capital to open one of our franchises. And then I think the third level, which is often not talked about, is you know, there was also discussion around the opportunities for women and minorities to invest in this sector, not just to be licensees and operators or employed, but to actually uh, reap the investment um, value of this. And so the fund itself has a very high percentage of investors who are women and minorities investing in, in women and minorities, right? And so um, the, the fund itself, um, was established, the franchise was approved, and we kicked that off. We have a franchisee who is in the early stages with regards to real estate, site selection, location, all that stuff, zoning um, in New Jersey. And then we have a franchisee who is weeks or actually days away from opening in Mississippi. Um, we were very um, eager to really realize this in Maryland when we knew adult use was coming because we knew um, in inside of medical, there were no new licenses at that time. But with the advent of adult use, there would be licenses added to the program. And so we thought we can bring our program and our dollars here to our home state. Unfortunately, the law was drafted in a way that not only precludes the access to our millions of dollars in our fund, which could support multiple franchisees here in Maryland, but it also precludes the structure of a franchise because when you have a franchise you're getting like this business in a box right so we're giving you guidance on how you operate we're giving you the branding and marketing tools um you know there's a whole manual that lets you figure out how to do this without having to actually figure it out right you you focus on running your business being a great owner operator and a member of the community and building your team, but you don't have to figure out every piece of this puzzle. But the way that the law was structured and how control was defined, it doesn't allow somebody to use that toolkit. So we are hopeful that in the next session, we can see that change to be able to advance this opportunity here in Maryland. Um, I should also say that the way that this was structured was really to use like a colloquialism would be more of like a Kickstarter, right? So if you are a benefactor of the fund, you have to, um, you would 
uh, buy out the fund and re and resume full control, you always have majority control. Um, you always have a 60% control of the business. Um, the, for the fund just takes a 40% stake. But you would have 100% control um, once you buy out the, the fund from your original loan. And that needs to happen in as little as three years or as many as seven. So it's really just there as a launch pad and it's set up at very favorable rates to be a support system for people to get up and running, right? It's not, you know, if you hear about people actually being able to access capital from, from a loan structure in this industry, they're at extremely high interest rates. That's not how this is set up. Um, we were really looking to be innovative in solving a problem that we could um, kind of uh, permeate across multiple states that were expanding their programs, that were creating social equity opportunities. Um, but to be honest, it has been very hard um, because many of the state programs have laws that are, are very restrictive to the access to this. So um, it's been a lot of push and pull to make it happen. So, um, you know, best laid plans, I guess. That's such a shame when, it, you know, everybody's struggling to find these social equity programs that could really work. And what more do you need than handholding? I mean, it's, uh, it's so messed up. It really is. Um, but um, so now, so you have your you have your main store or your store in Maryland, the uh, a franchise in New Jersey coming up in Mississippi. And then did you also launch just another expansion of your Maryland store into Missouri? Is that what I read? Or so Missouri is the so so our um our brand our company is Curio Wellness, and that is the brand that all of the products we produce under cultivation and processing, they sit under Curio Wellness. Our retail brand is called Far and Daughter, which is Swedish for father and daughter. And that's a nod to our roots as my father and I started the company and we are a family um, owned and operated business. I work with my dad, my sister, and my brother. Um, so the Far and Daughter is, is here in Maryland. And then um, as well as in these franchise opportunities, Curio Wellness is what is set to launch um, very soon in Missouri. Um, that will be, we have a cult, we have 130,000 square foot cultivation and manufacturing building that, um, is, is set to go online very soon and we'll be entering that market. Um, I do think that we're hopeful to see opportunity to bring foreign daughter there as well, but we'll be coming to the state first with our wholesale business. Oh, okay. So all we talked about, about will be coming the GI, the good night, the good day, um, our, our award-winning chews, um, our vapes. We'll be starting with everything from the processor side as our cultivation side of our business completes its construction. And then in the second half of the year, we'll bring cultivation online in Missouri. Wow, a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. That sounds exciting though. Um, so I've also heard a lot, I've been hearing a lot of um, from people about uh, using MSAs, master, uh, master service agreements to use as an expansion strategy instead of having to go into a state and get you know a whole license and blah, 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 blah. And I know that you uh, were, had worked with um, in New Jersey with the uh, Senator there, uh, Senator Singleton um, on the legislation to uh, allow uh, companies to come in and uh, enable those partnerships. And I'm just wondering, is that a strategy that you think you might use as, a, as far as expansion? And what do you think the pros and cons are about that? 
So um, in Maryland during medical, we saw a lot of operators um, use a management service agreement as dispensaries sort of started to, um, you know, dispensaries got up and running, found it was more difficult, found a seasoned partner, went into a managed service agreement, things like that. Um, the bills that we had passed in New Jersey were directly related to the franchise and fund, um, not to a management service agreement. So um, we worked with Senator Singleton and Assemblywoman Jackson um, initially to pass a bill when the program was medical, which allowed up us the fund specifically, because it was about how much, typically when you look at um, cannabis programs, there's a certain percentage stake that you can take as an investor in a single license, and you can't be across multiple licenses. And so the fund is not an individual, it's an entity. And so we wanted to be able to support more than one franchisee. I should say that you know, since we launched that program, we've had over a thousand applicants and we've had several from New Jersey. Um, but the way that the law was structured, we could only support one with the fund. So we were working, we had worked previously to pass this bill that when they were medical allowed us to support up to seven. And so going into, as they went into adult use, we went through the process again with the legislative team to take that existing law and tweak it so that it applied to medical and adult use. And the governor signed that earlier this year. So now we would be able to facilitate the fund and the franchise to up to seven individuals um, in the state of New Jersey. Oh, fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, so I guess winding down, um, what it, what is the future plans? Where, where are you going after this? What's the vision for Foreign Daughter, Curio? I mean, you're doing so much, I wouldn't even know how to break it off, but what what is the next stage? Um, so obviously very near term here is um, we look to continue to lead in Maryland in our home state um, where we've been the leader since this program began. began. Um, this is also our hub where all of our product innovation is happening. Um, so there's there's a lot of different products we're talking about and our scientific board is working behind the scenes on. Um, as we enter Missouri, looking to grow inside that market um, and bring our suite of products. The, the In meeting um, dispensary partners there as we've prepared to come on board, we've been, um, we're eager to enter because it sounds like a lot of this differentiation that we've focused on is going to be appreciated there. Um, products like ours don't necessarily exist. And even the ones that do, um, you know, when we bring our flour, we have very high quality, high testing flour. And with respect to THC, terpenes, and minor cannabinoids, um, I think that's kind of outsized from what we see from the other growers there. Um, and then just the quality of our manufactured products. We're also CGMP, I didn't mention that. That's good manufacturing practices. Um, it's a certification that uh, most um, FDA products in the in the country fall under for food and pharma and cosmetics. Um, and so we're CGMP certified here. We'll be CGMP certified in Missouri. I believe there's only, only one other company in Missouri who has that status. We recently became good ag agricultural collective um, practices certified here. So it's it's sort of the, the cultivation side of that. Our facility um, earned that. So these are all standards that go far beyond what is required by a state, but really normalize us to where we believe we will go when things are corrected on the federal level. Um, and and we, we have to answer to a higher authority. Um, we'll continue to look for expansion opportunities for both Curio Wellness and Far and Daughter. Um, and the other part of my job is a lot of the public policy space. So 
you know, my number one goal is the eradication of 280E, um, doing a lot of um, work on the federal level um, to to advise and, and focus Congress on moving policy that will address this. That, that is what really holds this industry back in terms of its ability to um, realize the investments, um, return invested capital, reinvest in our companies, uh, um, you know, provide further for our employees and innovate. Um, and I think it's it's really the piece that needs to be fixed to move things forward. It's also the piece that will make all these social equity programs much more valuable, right? If people can realize the full profit potential um, and not pay 70, 80, 90% corporate tax rate and, and many of their profits just go back to the federal government um, and in some cases the state government, um, that really changes the trajectory and I think um, makes this worthwhile. It's a, it's a very hard business to be in because it's highly constrained. Um, so that is that is a lot of my work on the day to day. Um, we'd love to see cannabis be descheduled um, to be governed under the Federal Food and Drug Cosmetic Act, akin to a dietary supplement as it pertains to those of us who exist in the in the um, current ecosystem. Um, and that would then open also cannabis up to, you know, the pharma companies if they want to go further, if they want to get into clinical trials and, and real pharmaceutical development. But for those of us who exist in state-based systems, it would legitimize us. Um, it would take away all of these constraints and it would allow us to function um, at a higher level inside our existing system. And what does that mean? Like on a daily or weekly basis, are you uh, calling senators or, you know, arranging meetings to, to demonstrate what you're doing? Yeah scientific level and stuff how what how was yeah how does that work yes yeah, so um you know it means working with um partners like noted firms in dc who represent us who help us work draft white papers that really bring facts and data to the conversation um and circulating that amongst key players on the Hill and across federal agencies and the and the White House and that administration um yes it is having meetings I have a meeting this afternoon with a, a congressional office, um, both, you know, I do it on Zoom. I go being in Maryland, I'm in proximity. I go there. So, yeah, it's, it's a hard charged effort to be in front of people and to have this conversation and to let them see um, kind of how normal this business is and break the myths. I, I strongly encourage every congressional office that I speak to 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 get on the train. They'll be here, you know, inside of 45 minutes and come see these facilities that we have. Our grow is 160,000 square feet indoor, hygienic, um, you know, GACP certified. Our, our manufacturing is 30,000 square feet of GMP manufacturing. I think it is not what people expect. Um, it is very regimented. It is very precise um, and, it's, and it is the future. And so all the myths need to be busted and, and we need to be realized for, you know, we're, we're a vibrant industry. We're making products that, that improve people's quality of life, and we are dramatically contributing to local and state economies. So we need to be seen for who we are. Wow, that's fantastic. That's a great way to end. That is really perfect. I just have to say, I'm so impressed with Curio and everything you're doing, and you guys are obviously leaders and moving this industry forward, and it's so great to see because I hope we all make it. Um, and uh, really nice to meet you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.